Amen. Good morning. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, worship team. Thank you, missions team. That was great. If you would, turn to Daniel chapter 12. Daniel chapter 12. We'll be finishing up Daniel this morning. We've been going through Acts, 1 Corinthians, Revelation, and Daniel. And we've been doing that because of all the things that are going on in our culture. It's been designed to help equip us to trust and equip us to love regardless of what the future might hold. When we were raising our kids and they were real young, uh, if we were going into an unusual situation in various ways, we would try to prep them for what was going to happen. We would talk to them about what they could expect and what we expected of them in that situation. And so we tried to prepare them for what was to come. And that's exactly what God is doing in the book of Daniel and in the book of Revelation, as well as Acts and 1 Corinthians 2 in different ways, but especially with regard to the issue of persecution and with regard to the issue of suffering. In these books, God is prepping his people. It's like we're in the van, we're on the way, and God is telling us what we need to know to be prepared when we arrive at the destination of suffering and persecution. And so it's helpful to understand that when you're reading through Daniel and reading through Revelation, um, eschatology has a purpose. It can be very challenging to understand, but it has a very important practical purpose in our lives so that we can trust God as we need to and so that we can love as we need to when things are really unsettling, disturbing, hard, difficult, in all kinds of ways, just like we saw from the testimony of Rebecca and in, lo- in the loss of her family and all that happened as she testified in that video. I was watching uh, just this week um, a discussion between John Piper and John MacArthur. I guess uh, it was at a conference on the Puritans, I think, and they had this little uh, Q&A panel, and they were the only ones on the panel, I guess. And someone asked the question, uh, how should the church prepare for persecution? And their answers were different and yet very similar. John MacArthur started off by talking about how things are in our society and how he would characterize where we are now as a culture and as a country as being very similar to first century paganism, just like the early church in the first century in the Roman Empire. Very similar in the sense that we're not in a a nation that is ready, willing, and able to acknowledge the Christian faith. But we're more and more moving toward um, a time where uh, Christianity seems to be a threat rather than a blessing. When I was growing up, there were all kinds of benefits to going to church. Politicians went to church before elections because it helped them in their election or re-election. That's not the case anymore. And so it's, it's very much a situation in which Christianity, because of what we stand for, because of what we say, has become a primary threat to the culture's agenda. And we just need to understand that. And one way to be prepared for uh, persecution is to understand that um, there are things going on in our culture that are moving in a direction where unless the Lord changes things, we can expect to have the same kind of persecution that 260 million believers around the world are presently experiencing. Um, God may change things. He may send a revival. He may send awakening, but he may not. And we might find ourselves in very similar situations to that believer in Nigeria uh, before too long. Who knows? We don't know. But John Piper's response was to say, Regardless of where you find yourself, whether you're in Nigeria and your village is being burned down and your husband and son are being killed, or if you find yourself in the U.S. where we still enjoy the free exercise of religion, even though there's more anti-Christian talk and there's some anti-Christian action taking place in various ways, it's not like that yet. So regardless of where we find ourselves, we still need to have a theology of suffering. We still need to understand that the Bible talks a lot about suffering and that believers will suffer. And we're just saying, I know you love me, so I will trust you. 
that's going to the destination and God is saying, uh, remember, I love you. Uh, remember, I've promised you good. Remember, it's going to be okay. But when we get to the destination of suffering and persecution, uh, that faith will be tested. But remember, on the way over, I told you, I love you, and I will take care of you, and you will be all right. And that is what we see taking place in the book of Daniel, in the book of Revelation, as well as other parts of Scripture in so many different ways. We, we need to realize that things are changing in our country, and they may get like they are in other places in the world, depending on what God does. Um, and we need to realize that the Bible says, regardless of whether we're under that kind of persecution or not, we will suffer. We will have a test of faith that causes us to raise the question, does God love me? Does God care? Can I trust God with what I'm going through and, and the aftermath of what I'm going through? We will face that regardless of what our circumstances might be. And as I mentioned last week, the basic message of the Bible is very simple. We uh, promoted Piper um, this Sunday. And when we think about children, it's helpful to be able to put things in, in very simple terms. And you can say to a child, the Bible tells us that God is good and we are not. Only Jesus saves. So we must turn in trust and we must trust in love. That's the Bible to a child, to a little child. That's the Bible. God is good. Things may not look good and there may be things that question God's goodness in our minds, but God is good We might want to think we're not too bad. The Bible says we're worse than we think we are. And we desperately need a Savior. And that Savior is not Hindu. That Savior is not Buddhist. That Savior is Christian and Christ alone Christian. Not any trust in anything else beyond Christ. And the Bible calls us to turn from our sin and trust in Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And then to live our life trusting God and his promises and loving by obeying his commands, even if we're under persecution, even if we lose our husband and our son, whatever our circumstances might be, we're called to endure to the end. And so it's helpful to keep that in mind as we read uh, these uh, passages, because um, like we said last week, there are hard things in the Bible and there are hard things in life. And the question is, how am I going to respond to the hard things in the Bible? And how am I going to respond to the hard things in life? And it all comes down to, what do I think about God? Can I trust God? Am I depending on Jesus and what he's done for me? Do I believe that there is a hope that transcends this life? And that in the end, it will be okay because Jesus has made it so. Well, if you would, join me in reading Daniel chapter 12. And we'll try to see what the Lord would have us uh, focus on this morning and highlight this morning for our own encouragement and for our greater faith in him in our own day and time. In Daniel 12, it says, Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. And there will be a time of distress, such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Those who have insight will shine brightly, like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. And those who lead the many to righteousness, like the stars forever and ever, But as for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. Many will go back and forth and knowledge will increase. Then I, Daniel, looked and behold, two others were standing, one on this bank of the river and the other on that bank of the river. And one said to the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river, how long will it be until the end of these wonders? I heard the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river as he raised his right hand and his left toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time. And as soon as they finished shattering the power of the holy people, 
all these events will be completed. As for me, I heard but could not understand. So I said, my Lord, what will be the outcome of these events? He said, go your way, Daniel, for these words are concealed and sealed up until the end time. Many will be purged, purified, and refined, but the wicked will act wickedly, and none of the wicked will understand, but those who have insight will understand. From the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. How blessed is he who keeps waiting and attains to the 1,335 days. But as for you, go your way to the end. Then you will enter into rest and rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age. This is the word of God. Daniel is about God's sovereignty over all of history and especially God's sovereignty over tyrannical governments. Because what we find in the book of Daniel is Daniel in Babylon with um, at least two kings of Babylon and and the third king of Persia being mentioned, Um, Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, and then Darius. And, And so you've got Daniel who's in a pagan government and they are tyrannical governments. They are governments that impose their will on people. They're not democracies. They're not taking a vote. Uh, They are tyrants who rule and reign according to their own will. Well, on Tuesday, we're going to have an election. And we have the privilege in this country of having a part, having a say in who rules our country. And there's definitely one way or the other, however you parse it, there is this movement toward tyranny. Why is that? Because it always moves that direction. Every government, no matter how it starts out, will always move toward tyranny because of the sin of man, because of the sinful desires of man, the sinful inclinations. Uh, Power does corrupt sinful people. It doesn't corrupt God, but it corrupts sinful people. And the more power you have, the more inclination there is to gain more power and to exercise control. And that's why the Bible tells us as Christians to be involved as much as we can. Now, it was different for Paul in the Roman Empire, but he still said to Christians, you need to pray for those in um, authority. In 1 Timothy, it tells us to do that, and we're to do the same thing. In Galatians 6, it says we're to do good to all people, especially to believers, but to all people. And one way we do that in our context is to vote. So as Christians, should we vote? Yes, we should vote. We should see that as a way of doing good to our nation, to all people. Um, The Bible says we should not support those who are against God's moral law. If they are trying to enact laws or support laws that violate the Ten Commandments, we should not support them. If they support murder in any form, if they support stealing in any form, we should not support them. And hopefully understand what that means politically. But we should support those who understand that there is a role of government that God has given. And we should support those who understand that the the role of government is to punish evildoers. And to praise those who do what is right. And so there's a proper role and we need to seek to elect those who understand that there's that proper role of government. And support those who support God-given rights. Like the freedom of religion, the free exercise of religion and speech and those kinds of things. And so there's a role that we need to play. But who knows what's going to happen on Tuesday? Ultimately, our hope is not in politics. So even if everything goes south from our perspective, God is still in charge. Even if things get more tyrannical, God's still in charge and we don't have to be afraid. But that doesn't mean we don't work toward what is good. And and God told the people in exile to pray for the welfare of your city and of your nation. Pray for the welfare of those that are right there around you. But the book of uh, Daniel talks about the fact that 
in chapter 1, it's about the king's food. And Daniel refuses to partake of the king's food. And God protects him and provides for him. In chapter 2, it's about the king's dream. And Daniel interprets the king's dream about what's going to happen in the future. In chapter 3, it's about the king's idol. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are thrown into the fiery furnace. And God protects them and brings them out of that. In chapter 4, it's about the king's insanity. This is the tyrannical king, talking about Nebuchadnezzar. It's insanity because he's so proud and God makes him an animal and then allows him to retake his position as king, which means God will put on the throne and in the White House whoever he chooses. Even if they eat grass out in a field somewhere, he can let them win the election. He's sovereign over it all. And chapter 5 talks about the king's feast where Belshazzar sees the handwriting on the wall and his kingdom comes to an end. Chapter 6 is about the king's edict where you shouldn't pray to anybody but the king. And Daniel prays and he's thrown into the lion's den and God protects him. So what are those stories all about? They're all about God's sovereignty over tyrants and his ability to protect and provide for his people, no matter how tyrannical the government may be, and no matter what the persecution might be. Chapter 7 is about the vision of the four beasts, which talk about the future. Uh, Likewise, in chapter 8, the vision of the ram and the goat, and uh, the little horn that would arise. Chapter 9 is about Daniel's prayer and the answer, and 10 through 12 are foreshadowing of the end. And it's It's uh, one of those situations where it talks about basically um, forecast or prophesies what was going to happen to the Jews right before the first coming of Christ. But I believe it also talks about what will happen to God's people right before the second coming of Christ. And so that's where we are um, in Daniel chapter 12 now. Um, The interesting thing is that the Jewish people, even today, are looking for a Messiah. And they believe that when the Messiah comes, the end will come. That's one of the reasons why uh, John the Baptist, back in his day, saw the ministry of Jesus and said, are you the one or we should, look, should we look for somebody else? Because it didn't seem like Jesus was doing everything that John the Baptist expected. And part of the expectation was that the uh, axe was already at the root and judgment was going to fall when the Messiah came. And yet Jesus wasn't judging. He was coming to save. But he will come to judge one day. And so the Jewish people still, even this day, are looking for a Messiah to come who will bring about the end. What they didn't understand is that, obviously, that Jesus is that Messiah that was to come. They didn't understand that it was going to be a two-part coming. There was going to be a first part, and then there was going to be a second part. But we see reflected here uh, what would happen at the end, which is uh, the second part. So in verses 1 through 4, what we see is the reality that God is prepping his people They're on the way to the destination of hard times. And he says, there's going to be darkness before the dawn. Uh, Before things get better, they're going to get significantly worse. And that's why it says, now at that time, meaning the time of the end, Michael, the great prince, some people understand that as Christ, some as an angel. I think it refers to an angel who stands guard over the sons of your people will arise, and the implication is to arise to protect the people of God. And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time, and and at that time your people, everyone who is found written in the book, which is a reference to the elect people of God, will be rescued. And so there's this time of distress, and there's this rescue And I believe that the time of distress is a pointer to what we find in the New Testament when Jesus talks about the great tribulation. If you look at Matthew 24, he says, Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, and you'll be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. 
For then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. In Bible prophecy, I believe there are foreshadowings. Uh, One foreshadowing of this was when Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, who was a Syrian king, uh, persecuted the people of God before the first coming of Christ. I believe it also refers to what happened when the uh, Jerusalem was destroyed under Titus uh, in 70 AD, but ultimately it points toward right uh, what will happen right before the end when Christ will come back. There's going to be a great tribulation such as has never happened in the history of the world. There's going to be a persecution of believers unparalleled. There might be a lot of believers now being uh, persecuted. At that point, all believers will be persecuted. All nations will hate you, the Bible says. And yet, it says in Daniel that everyone who's found in the book, all the people of God, will be rescued. And I think that's uh, ultimately a reference to um, what Jesus says also in Matthew 24 when he says, but immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with great power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other, which I believe is a reference to the rapture. He comes, Jesus comes back and his people are caught up. And it's after the tribulation that this happens. And so you see other references to that in 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians as well. And so I think Daniel is giving us a taste of what is also spoken about in the New Testament with regard to what is going to happen at the end because twice at least twice in this passage, the angel says, seal this up because this is going to happen at the end of time. This isn't going to happen uh, soon. It's going to happen many, many uh, generations in the future. Well, he goes on in verse 2 and says, many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground, meaning those who are dead, will awake, which is a reference to resurrection, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt, which is a reference to the resurrection of the righteous, and the wicked. It says in John chapter 5, Jesus says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice, speaking of the voice of God, and will come forth those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. And so he's speaking of that which is going to happen at the end of time, speaking of the bodily resurrection of all people, believers and unbelievers. Well, it's interesting when I talk about the whole issue of there will be darkness before the dawn. If you think about um, the two books that were burnt in the fire in that video, Genesis and Revelation, at the very beginning of Genesis, you've got God creating um, the heavens and the earth, and got six days of creation, and each of those days is uh, is talked about in terms of an evening and morning. There is one day, evening and morning. So you've got darkness before light. So you've got this move it from darkness to light, and even to this day, the Jewish people often think in terms of uh, from evening to morning as being a day. You know, that's why Jesus was taken down from the cross and, and buried, and the, the uh, uh, criminals who were crucified with him were taken down from the cross before sunset, because that's when the next day, the Sabbath would start, would be at sunset. So you, in Jewish thinking, you actually move from darkness to light, and that's actually the way it works in terms of what God's plan is. He moves from darkness to light. And it's helpful to understand that just practically. Obviously, there's so many things practically that we could talk about. Um, but I think about a person like John Newton. John Newton was um, a believer, a pastor who wrote Amazing Grace. 
and he worked a lot with um, people who really struggled in various ways, like William Cooper, um, who wrote the hymn, God Moves in Mysterious Ways. And he recognized the idea that uh, he looked at his life as if he was walking through a hospital. There are sick people, needy people all around. And he didn't simply talk about uh, normal hospitals where you have you know, people that have broken arms or uh, have the, you know, pneumonia or something like that. He also talked in terms of, you know, it's kind of like walking through an insane asylum. You know, people are often they're thinking in really significant ways. And somebody has commented on um, John Newton's perspective on life in a fallen world and has said he was very realistic about what to expect from people in a fallen world, and from life in a fallen world. And sometimes we're not as realistic as we ought to be. We ought to be more realistic. And the more you read your Bible and understand what God says about the world and the fall and sin and sinners, uh, it makes you more realistic about what to expect from people. And he talks about, John Newton talks about Satan's rage and the attack of the enemy on people And he talks about the Lord permitting some of his people to suffer violent assaults from the powers of darkness. And he says, though the Lord sets such bounds to Satan's rage, meaning he he limits what Satan will do, obviously, and limits him both as to manner and time, he is often pleased to suffer Satan to discover his malice or to express his malice to a considerable degree. Not to satisfy Satan, he says, but to humble and prove believers, to show them what is in their hearts, to make them truly sensible of their immediate and absolute dependence upon God, and to quicken them to prayer and watchfulness. And he goes on to say, and to show God's power in them and through them and to them. That God has a good reason for putting us through times of distress, has a good reason for putting us through times of trouble. There will be a good reason that right before Jesus comes back, his people are going to be persecuted like never before. That life is going to be hard and like never before. But it will be for our good and it will be for God's glory. And so this passage in Daniel talks about the fact that there is going to be darkness before the dawn and it will be significant, but it will be shortened, meaning that it will be limited. If you look in verses 5 through 7, he talks about um, a question is asked of the man dressed in linen, which appears to be the angel Gabriel, who's been revealing things to Daniel. And the question is, how long, um, you know, is this going to, will will the, will it be until the end of these wonders, he says, which is basically a say a question of how long will this distress? How long is this time going to be? Is it going to be forever? Or how long will it be? And so you've got this picture here of a great time of distress. And it even talks in terms of uh, the shattering of the power of the holy people in verse 7. Think about that. The shattering of the power of the holy people. Who are the holy people? That's you and me. We're the holy people, the people of God. Of the believers in Jesus. And what does it mean to be to shatter? Well, it means things similar to what are said in the book of Revelation when it talks about the beast from the sea or the Antichrist. Uh, it says in Revelation 13, 7, it was also given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. To overcome them. Uh, to make war with the saints and actually win the war. To actually put to death the saints. And so you get the, this picture in verses 5 through 7 that there's going to be really some significant persecution on the church. It even says in, what is it, Second Timothy 3, Paul says, but realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, 
And he goes on from there. So he pictures a pretty sober situation when you think about what it says about how things will get worse. And that getting worse will result in things getting much more difficult for us as believers. And the cry is, how long is this terrible persecution going to be? And it's a reminder of how often in the Psalms, um, the psalmist says, how long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? Like, for instance, in Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Uh, My enemy is winning the day. My enemy is being victorious. He says, consider and answer me, O Lord, my God, enlighten my eyes or I will sleep the sleep of death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him. And my adversaries will rejoice when I am shaken. But then he says in verse 5, but I have trusted in your loving kindness. Remember the song? You said, you love me, so I will trust you. I have trusted in your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. How long, O Lord, is this going to be? And so the good news is that it says the answer is a time, times, and half a time. And that's a figurative way of saying it's going to be significant, but it's going to be limited. Half a time means it's not as long as it could be. So it's speaking figuratively. Now, some take those those references as more literal, like three and a half years, depending on your eschatology. Many people take that as a figurative of it's going to be a significant time, but it's not going to be forever, and it's going to be shortened. And even in uh, the Gospels, the Lord Jesus talks about the Great Tribulation, but he says this, unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And so it's going to be a great tribulation. It's going to be significant, more significant than any tribulation the church has seen in the history of the world. But it will be limited. Satan's rage will be limited. It will be shortened for the sake of the elect. But I do believe that the significance of this is such that it it's part of what was in the background of what Jesus was talking about when he said to us in Luke 18 that we should pray and not lose heart. And then he tells the story of the widow that's asking for help from the judge, and the judge doesn't want to give her any help. And then finally he says, I'll give this widow help lest she continues coming to me and and bothering me. And so the point of the story is, Jesus says, hear what the unrighteous judge said. You know, I'll I'll give her uh, protection lest she wear me out. He says, now will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? Bring about justice. In what context is that all about? That's in a context of suffering, hardship, difficulty, and persecution. That's that language of justice. When will God rescue us from this persecution and deal appropriately with our persecutors? When will God bring about justice? Who cry to him day and night, and will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly, which means, it doesn't mean he's going to do it right away. It means he will do it at the perfect time. He will bring justice at just the right moment. But Jesus goes on to say, however, When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? What does that mean? Will he find faith on the earth? I think it means that the persecution of believers at the end is going to be so significant, you'll begin to wonder if there are any believers left. Not that there won't be any believers left, but it will be very significant. And that's why driving over to distress, you have to believe the word of God. And that's what that woman held on to was the word of God. And it's interesting to me that 
persecutors try to remove or destroy the Bible. Because that's the word of God to us. It tells us what's true in the face of persecution. It tells us what's true in the face of difficulties. We need the word of God. And so all of this is about the fact that uh, this suffering will be significant but shortened. And we can trust God. Um, there's another day of distress that's actually referred to, you might remember, in the book of Habakkuk. In the book of Habakkuk, it talks about um, actually the day of distress when God would bring judgment on Israel through Nebuchadnezzar. In Habakkuk 3, Habakkuk says, um, I heard and my inward parts trembled at the sound, my lips quivered, decay enters my bones and in my place I tremble because I must wait quietly for the day of distress. You might feel that way by reading about the great tribulation. What if it comes in our, in our generation? What if it comes in our lifetime? It might be something we might be afraid of. He goes on to say, though the fig tree should not blossom and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength and he has made my feet like, like hinds feet and makes me walk on my high places. I believe in the context the high places are the difficult places the sharp crags, the the places that are hard to walk on, hard to walk through. But God is my strength. God is my salvation. And my hope is in God, no matter what the day of distress might bring. Uh, Charles Spurgeon talks about the same dynamic just in everyday suffering that we can apply to the most significant sufferings. When he talks about uh, his own suffering and he says it would be a very sharp and trying experience to me to think that I have an affliction which God never sent me, that the bitter cup was never filled by his hand, that my trials were never measured out by him, nor sent to me by his arrangement of their weight and quantity. And he's talking about a God who loves him. The God has sent the trial, he's measured out, he's limited it, he knows exactly what it needs to be and for how long, and he sent it to me because he loves me. And so as a result, um, that, that is what we need to um, strengthen our faith in regard to. That's why we need a theology of suffering like John Piper talked about. We need to strengthen our faith that suffering does not mean God does not love me. But I know that because of Christ, God does love me and I can face whatever I need to face. There's so much more we could say about that. Let me move on to the last point in light of our time. Um, It will be the significant but shortened suffering at the end and every suffering before that uh, will be for our holiness and our happiness. If you look at verses 8 through 13, it's interesting in verse 8, Daniel says, I heard but could not understand. It says in 2 Peter that the prophets tried to understand the prophecies that they made at different times, and they they didn't always fully understand uh, the prophecies about Christ and the prophecies about the end. And so we shouldn't be surprised if we don't fully understand the prophecies either. And yet the implication of what is said in Daniel 12 is that the people who need to understand it when it's happening will understand it when it's happening. And so to me, that is very encouraging. What Daniel asked is, my Lord, what will be the outcome of these events? Meaning, you know, you talk about the shattering of God's people. What's going to be the outcome of that? Does that mean they're destroyed forever? And obviously that's not the case. He's basically asking, how will this result in you keeping your promises to your people? How will you work this together for good? Um, can you give me some more information 
on what this really means. And basically the angel says in verse 9, Go your way, Daniel, uh, for these words are concealed and sealed up until the end time. Which means, Daniel, I've given you all the information you need to trust God and love. Later on, other generations will understand what they need in order to trust and love. And obviously we have the New Testament, which he doesn't have or didn't have at the time. And so he says, he goes on um, in verse 10 to talk about many will be purged, purified, and refined, which is the idea of many will be made holy. And then he says, but the wicked will act wickedly. And none of the wicked will understand, but those who have insight will understand. So it's kind of like this picture of like it in Psalm 73. The godly man in Psalm 73 says, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant, as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. We may very well see... Things play out in our own country where the wicked prosper more and more. The wicked agenda is furthered more and more. Ungodliness and lawlessness might become more and more in our country. And we might begin to think, wow, um, maybe there's something wrong with my faith or my thinking about things because it seems like the wicked are prospering. And yet the Bible tells us that that prospering of the wicked is actually a testing of our faith. Our persecution through the prospering of the wicked is a testing of our faith. That's why in Peter, it talks about those who are protected by the power of God through a faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, You have been distressed by various trials so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As I've thought about the various ways I might die, fire is at the top of my list of not wanting to die that way. Being burnt alive is the last thing that I would want to do in terms of my dying. So the Bible talks about being tested by fire. It's not talking about a little thing. It's talking about really hard stuff. It's talking about very painful things. It's talking about things we would say, nope, I'd rather not. Thank you, but no thank you. But it's the thank you, but no thank you things that God gives to us that show whether or not our faith is real. It proves our faith and it glorifies God. And it's for our joy. That's why James says in James chapter 1, consider it all joy. Count it. Put it in the ledger under the category of joy. Not meaning that it feels like joy, but that it is for your joy. Fire does not feel like joy, but... God says, I promise you, it is for your joy. It is for your full and lasting happiness. Now, for the unbelievers, it says, none of the wicked will understand what's going on at the end, even as they don't understand what's going on right now. Um, Jesus says at the end, it will be like uh, the days of Noah. He says, for the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood... They were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will be, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. So he says it's going to be just like when the flood came, that which is a foreshadowing of the ultimate final judgment. Um, those who aren't believers will not understand what's going on but believers will understand what's going on. That's, that's what he says in Daniel, but those with insight will understand. Those who are wise or those who have faith, the wisdom that comes from faith in the word of God. And that's why Jesus could say, talk about the parable of the fig 
leaves. He would say about his return that before I come back, uh, just like before summer, you know that summer is near because the leaves begin to appear on the fig tree. You realize that something is about to happen because something else is happening. And so he says, when these things begin to take place, straighten up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Then he told them a parable. Behold, the fig leaves and all the trees, as soon as they put forth leaves, you see it and know for yourselves that summer is now near. So you also, when you see these things happening, recognize that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all things take place. Essentially, if you look at 1 Thessalonians 5, he's, um, Paul says something similar. He says, For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night, while they are saying, Peace and safety. Then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child. They will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet the hope of salvation. We're going toward trouble, persecution. What you need to do, kids, is you need to trust me, you need to rest in Jesus, you need to hope in God, you need to pursue love, no matter what happens. No matter how dark it gets, no matter how bad it gets, no matter, no matter how many people die around you, no matter if you even have to die for my name's sake, Rest in Jesus and what he's done for you. Hope in God's promises and love those who persecute you. Love the people in your life no matter what happens. And it all comes down to um, believing the word of God and applying the word of God and holding on to the word of God. Uh, Martin Luther, interestingly, studied Psalm 119. And from Psalm 119, he said, there are three things that will make you a good theologian. And what he means is a strong believer, uh, a more Christ-like person, however you want to put it. And he said those three things are prayer, meditation on the word, and trials. And he's basically arguing that the key to all of that is the Bible, that the way you understand the Bible and trust the Bible and trust the Bible in the midst of persecution and suffering is you have to pray. You pray that God would help you understand the Bible and help you believe what the Bible says when he says he loves you. He forgives you through Jesus if you're trusting in Jesus. And that you meditate on it until you see what he wants you to see. That you don't just read it for five minutes and then go your way, but you take time one way or the other to meditate on what the Bible says and to ask God to help you to understand what the Bible says and to believe what the Bible says. But he also says, you're still not going to understand the Bible as you should and believe the Bible as you should apart from actually going through tough times. He quotes Psalm 119.67, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. So go back and read Psalm 119, which exalts the word of God, exalts the Bible. And then look at how it says uh, that we should be praying and how we should be meditating on the Bible, but also how our afflictions actually help us understand it and help us to see what we need to see in it and to believe it more deeply and more profoundly. Martin Luther could say, for as soon as God's word becomes known through you, the devil will afflict you, will make a real doctor of you, and will teach you by his temptations to seek and to love God's word. And he said he actually thanked God for the papists because through their so beating, pressing, and frightening me, through the devil's raging, that they turned me into a fairly good theologian. 
which means it was for his holiness, which means it was for his happiness. Jesus said, I've commanded these things, this is in John 15, I've given you all these commands that you may have my joy, that my joy might be in you. I've given you all these commands that you might be holy so that you might be happy. And the trials that come our way, even the greatest trials that will ever happen to the church of Jesus Christ will be for our holiness and for our happiness. And so to prepare for what's coming, we need to not be surprised if Christianity in our country becomes more of the target And we need to embrace God's word. Um, Just like Rebecca, the word became more precious after she lost her husband and her son. Not that it wasn't before, but it took it to a deeper level. She saw things in it, I'm sure, through that experience that she did not see before. And that book became more precious. Why? Because God became more precious. And so when God becomes more precious, his word becomes more precious, his promises become more precious, and it's all a part of walking through hard times. And so when you read your Bible, realize that God is prepping you because you are on your way to suffering. It may not be the ultimate great tribulation. We might be gone before that happens. But you are, I guarantee you, on your way to suffering but you're also on your way to glory. And that's why Paul could say, if we suffer with him, we will be glorified with him. And we need to hang on to the great Savior we have. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word is so realistic. It's so real. It's so honest with us about you and about us and about life and about suffering, about what is happening now and what is going to happen and you tell us what you tell us to prep us that we might continue to trust and hope and love no matter what suffering we have to face that we might believe that you love us and that you will carry us through and that your word is true so I pray I pray that you would strengthen our faith strengthen our theology of suffering Strengthen our hope in a God who brings light after darkness. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.